Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us through your word today. Lord, we know that that is a work that you are committed to and you are um, eager to do among us. You are, you are eager to shape us by your word. And so, Lord, we just, we posture ourselves before you humbly, saying we need your help. And so, Father, would you be a, a teacher to us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in middle school, I had a, um, there, there was a guy that came to our school um, as a new student, and it was eighth grade, and so we were, all, we were all kind of establishing our friendships. The school year had already started, and this guy comes rolling in on like the third or fourth week of school, and he's the new kid, and I instantly don't like him at all, right? He comes in, and of course, everyone's interested in him because he's new, and all the girls start to like him just because he's new, not because he's handsome, just because he's new, right? And, 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 like, friends are interested in him just because he's new. Teachers give him extra attention just because he's new. And he just had one of those names that was just like, kind of just like a weird name. His name was Patrick McGillicuddy, so it's like a memorable name. And so just this guy, like everything about him, I was like, dude, I don't like you. Why are you here? You're like, you're messing up my situation I have going on here, right? This is eighth grade year. I'm at the top. Like, before we go into high school and things start all over again, like, I, like, what are you doing here? No one likes you, except everyone liked him. And eventually, it's kind of funny because he became one of my best friends, right? And he became, like, I, just throughout high school, we were super close and it was awesome. But there was just something in me when this new kid showed up. I was like, what are you doing here? This is my turf, right? And maybe, maybe you've had an experience like this. Right? Maybe it's like somebody new coming into your family and you're instantly just really skeptical. Everybody likes them, but you don't. Maybe it's somebody that just get, you know, got hired at your job that's new and is getting all this extra attention and you're kind of like bothered by it or whatnot. Maybe you've had a moment like this, right? Where, where somebody new comes into your turf and you're just kind of like, what's happening here? Who does this person think that they are? As we come to John chapter 3, something like that is happening in, in Jerusalem with Jesus, Jesus has come onto the scene and all of a sudden he's kind of the new guy, but everyone is, is flocking to him. He's growing in massive popularity. He's doing these miracles. People are, are, are discovering who he is and word is spreading about Jesus and he's kind of this new guy onto the scene and he's kind of disrupting the order of things. And so there's some people that are kind of like, who is this Jesus? What, what do we do with this guy? We need to we need to put him in his place and let him know who we are and who he is. And as we come to John chapter 3, that's almost exactly what's happening. We get introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Now, there's some debate about Nicodemus. Well, there's a lot of debate. If you pick up any kind of commentary or you listen to, to any, any sermon or anybody talk about Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, there's some debate about what's the posture of Nicodemus as he comes to Jesus. Is he coming as some kind of um, genuine follower of Jesus, just really wanting to know more about him and investigate him? Is he skeptical and trying to just really understand what he should think about Jesus? Or maybe does he even come to him uh, more, more aggressively as a way to maybe kind of put Jesus in his place? And there's all kinds of debate about that. It's not all that important, although I will share with us this morning what my perspective of Nicodemus is that he comes a bit more aggressively towards Jesus. But we're introduced to Nicodemus right off the bat in John chapter 3. We're told two things about him. We're told that one, he's a Pharisee, and two, that he's part of the ruling elite in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was kind of a rare combo of a man. He was a rare Jewish man. 
He was one that was very familiar with um, the Pharisaical traditions, meaning they, the, the, the Pharisees and the movement behind the Pharisees was, we want to be very much about God's law. We want to follow it to a T. In fact, we want to care so much about it that we're going to add a whole bunch of extra laws to show people that we care about it more than they do, which became extra biblical and, and actually not helpful. But they, they, were, they were very concerned about the law. They wanted to follow it to a T and make sure everyone else was as well. They were also very concerned with adding all these different traditions alongside of it. So he was a Pharisee. He was representing that part of Judaism, but he was also part of the ruling elite. He was part of a wealthy family, a family that, that had a lot of influence culturally. And so Nicodemus was kind of this representative of the whole of Judaism. Every Jew in some way could identify themselves with Nicodemus, most likely. He was kind of at the very center, maybe the most representative voice possible. He had a respected family heritage, but he also had social religious status. And so this Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus. And it tells us in, in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Which maybe is John just simply telling us what time of day this happened. But if we read through the book of John, we see that pretty much every time John mentions something happening at night, there's something more he's communicating. He's communicating a deeper reality. A, a darkness or a, a negative situation or something spiritual. And I think what, what John is showing us here is that this Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. Maybe it's for practical reasons. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen. But maybe he's also communicating that Nicodemus is in darkness. That's what he told us at the very beginning of John, in John chapter 1, is that the world was in darkness and that Jesus is coming as, as the light to bring light to the darkness. So this Nicodemus, representing Judaism, representing the Jews, is now coming to Jesus at night in the darkness. And he begins his address to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now on the surface, it sounds very polite. It sounds like he's being very complimentary of Jesus. He's being very respectful. But actually, this was a, a common way to start a challenge dialogue with someone. Was to begin by, by giving pleasantries, by, by complimenting the person, which in turn would often actually be a way of bragging about yourself. And so maybe it would be something a little bit more along the lines of like, Rabbi, we know that you are, you're a teacher from God. Clearly, we know that. I think Nicodemus is posturing himself in a position of, of pride, a position of power. And he's coming to Jesus, wanting to put Jesus in his place. And this we that he speaks of is all those that he represents. He represents all of Judaism. He represents the religious leaders. He represents the social elite. And he comes in this plural form to say, we know this. It's as if Nicodemus is representing everyone else as he comes to Jesus to put him in his place. Because if you remember just the chapter before, the Jewish leaders were not all that excited about what Jesus did in their temple on Passover. He cleared the temple out. He pronounced judgment on, the, on Judaism. He pronounced judgment on the temple and the religious leaders. And so it could be that they're now sending Nicodemus to say, hey, that shaming that we tried last chapter didn't work so well. So let's go for a more forceful approach. Let's send Nicodemus to go to him one-on-one -on -one and put him in his place. 
So he says, you are a teacher from God. And he gives him this honorific language that I think is meant to be hyperbole. It's meant to be so above Jesus' pedigree that it's received as mockery. Right? This is, this is what, what, what some people will call um, combative hyperbole. Like giving Jesus, recognizing Jesus to have a title that's so obviously above his, his caliber and his pedigree and his credentials that it's interpreted as mockery. Right? I think that's what Nicodemus is doing here. He's coming to Jesus with this title of a teacher sent from God. Now, the term rabbi was used a lot culturally for a lot of different religious teachers. But to be considered a teacher of God's word, to be a teacher sent from God was, a, was an even higher authority. Reserved for only a few. And it's as if Nicodemus is coming to say, you have this great high authority as a teacher, even though he probably thinks, who is this Jesus guy from Nazareth? He, doesn't, he didn't go to some school. He has no credentials. What's his pedigree? This guy just came out of nowhere. So he has a posture of pride and disrespect towards Jesus and he gives him these mocking titles and it's as if there's this challenge happening between the representative of the Jews and the representative of God. And he gives him these mocking titles which ironically are very accurate. Jesus is the teacher sent from God. And we see this happen throughout Jesus' life where people will give Jesus mocking titles that actually are very true about him. Right, there was, a, there was these, this title spreading about Jesus throughout his life that he was a friend of sinners. That was used as a, as a mocking way to put him down to say, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And we as followers of Jesus would say, Amen. Amen. Good news that he is a friend of sinners. Right? That's what's happening here. He's giving this mocking title of Jesus, but ironically, it's actually very true about who he is. But this is an invitation, I believe, from Nicodemus to a challenge dialogue. This is his formal invitation. And here's what Jesus says. He doesn't ask him a question, but here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answers Nicodemus' challenge and puts himself squarely in the position of authority that Nicodemus was mockingly saying he was in. It's as if Jesus is just assuming that mantle to say, you know what, you, you're right, I am. I am the teacher sent from God. In fact, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus was, was claiming to, to see who Jesus was. We see who you are, but Jesus is coming in to say, actually, you don't see at all. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. See, to be a part of the kingdom of God meant you, you were part of God's family. You were under his rule and reign. You were a part of, of his community. You were, you were the people that would share in God's inheritance. And the, the common Jewish belief is it was assumed that the kingdom was something entirely in the future, not something now in the present. It was also assumed that every Jew would just be a part of the kingdom of God unless they were just the worst of the worst and utterly denied the God of Israel. Just every Jew ethnically would just be a part of the kingdom of God. But here comes Jesus to say, actually, you might be Jewish, you might be a part of the ruling elite, you might be following the law to a T, but even you, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born new. 
This would have been earth-shattering. And Jesus is brilliant here because he uses this word that has two meanings. He says, you, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born. In our Bibles, most of them will say again. But, but it, the word just literally is, unless you're born new. And it could mean one of two things. It could, could mean, unless you're born again, like a second time. Or, uh, it's, it's more of a, a place of origin. Unless you are born from above. And so it's this word that could go either way. So he says to Nicodemus, see, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born either again or from above. And it kind of puts Nicodemus in this place of, of weakness almost in this challenge dialogue where he now has to commit, which one does he think Jesus means? And he commits to, again, a second time, to be born a second time. Okay, so Jesus, you're saying, if I want to see the kingdom of God, oh great teacher, I have to be born a second time? And so he responds to Jesus and he says, well, uh, how, how, can a man, how, how can a man be born a second time? What, he's supposed to like go back into his mom and come out again? Like, what are you talking about? And he responds to Jesus, which it, it's either confusion. He just doesn't understand what Jesus means. Or he's just, he's further mocking Jesus of like, okay, born again? What? Like me as an old man, going to my mom again and come out again? Okay, teacher of God. So Jesus clarifies in verse 5. He's going to say the same thing, just in a different way. He says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and spirit. Now this is supposed to be Jesus' explanation of what it means to be born new. To be born from above or to be born again. This is his explanation. He's not talking about something different. He's actually des describing the same thing in a different way. And there's been lots of talk and, and confusion about what does this mean to be born of water and born of spirit? All right, we hear water as Christians. We might think, oh, he's talking about baptism. Or he's talking about the Holy Spirit. If, he, if he's telling Nicodemus, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he's got to get baptized. But you have, that would mean nothing to Nicodemus, right? Christian baptism is a post-resurrection of Jesus reality. I don't think that's what he's saying to Nicodemus here. He's going to later tell Nicodemus, he's going to rebuke him for not understanding this, to not, for not knowing that this was the requirement for entering the kingdom of God. Now, the only way that Jesus can hold him accountable for that is if the Old Testament scriptures teach that. Because the New Testament scriptures haven't been written yet when Jesus is saying these words. So he wants to hold Nicodemus to accountable to what he's already known. You know the law because you're a Pharisee? Okay then you should know this because the Old Testament teaches that you must be born through water and spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. This is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screens. Here's the promise of the new covenant. Here's what, here's what God said. Listen for water, spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I love that word. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel promises this, this new kingdom, this new covenant that's coming. 
And I think Jesus is referring back to this to say, this has been taught throughout the scriptures that if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, it's going to be through something totally new and fresh happening in you. It's going to be as if you were born of water and spirit. Representing this idea, this type of transformation or this cleansing or this renewal that's going to happen in you if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus really saying? I think Jesus is really saying to Nicodemus and to us that you can't see who I really am. You can't enter into my kingdom unless you have a brand new origin. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't understand who I truly am unless something happens in your heart. Unless there is this type of transformation and renewal that happens within you. You won't see it. You can't be a part of it. A new origin is needed that's entirely outside of your control. I was thinking about this as Jesus is saying these words. I was thinking, what would this feel like for us to hear something like this? And I was thinking, you know, what if all of a sudden the United States changed all of the requirements to be a citizen of the United States? Just go with me for a second, okay? Thought experiment. If all of a sudden, like let's say you are approaching retirement age, Okay? You've saved your whole life. You've worked in this system. You've been a good citizen. You're looking forward to your retirement. And all of a sudden, the United States puts in some new rule that says, actually, we've changed all the rules. Right? The, the, what, it, what it takes to be a citizen now is you actually have to be born on Mars. I know, it just got weird. Just go with me. It, in order to, be, to enjoy the benefits of citizenship in the United States, you have to have a birth on Mars. All of us would be like, what the heck are you talking about? All, wait, wait, like all the retirement that I saved for, you're just telling me all of a sudden I can't access it? It means nothing? I can't have it? Because I wasn't born on Mars? Are you insane? How am I supposed to be born on Mars? Like go to Mars and take my mom with me and go, re like what are you talking about? I can't go be born on Mars. I was born, how, what do you, what do you mean? That's the requirements to be a citizen. It would be so befuddling to us, right? It would make no sense. In fact, most of you are sitting here thinking, no, I can't believe this is the illustration he's using. It's really stupid. But I imagine this is the kind of confusion that Nicodemus felt of like, wait a minute. You're telling me everything I've worked for, everything I've built as a good Jew to follow the law and, and do all of these things and be a teacher and, and uh, like none of it counts for, like I, I can't enter the kingdom of God. I have to be born from above. I have to be born new. How, can, how do I even do that? That's entirely outside of my control. And that's entirely the point that Jesus is making. You see, Nicodemus would have been the most qualified person to enter God's kingdom. And so the point is that if he can't get in based on his credentials, nobody can. If he, the one who's dedicated his life to following the law, teaching the law, holding others accountable to the law, if he can't get in based on his, require, his credentials, nobody can. Jesus is coming and saying, actually, you need a new origin. You see, this group of people, the Pharisees in particular, they would have been so confident in the quality of their obedience 
that they would have felt there is no need for repentance, there is no need for renewal, there is no need for, trans for transformation. There's no need for a new birth. And Jesus is coming to say, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, it's, it's not about your credentials. It's not about your morality. It's not about how good you think you can be at being a good person or, or being moral. It's not about the improvement that you see across your life of like, as if God's just going to be proud of how hard you're trying and let you into his kingdom. That's not what it's about. It's not about your effort or it's not about your passion or how devoted you are to being kind or how devoted you are about your, your church attendance or your giving or whatever it may be. None of those things earn you entry into the kingdom of God. He's saying that there's something that has to happen within a man or a woman in order to enter the kingdom of God. And it's something that entirely must be done by God, not by us. He's saying to Nicodemus, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, something has to happen in you that you can't do. You can't give yourself a new origin. That's God's work. And it's the same for us. And I believe what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is a, a piece of doctrine, a piece of theology that we call regeneration. Regeneration. What is regeneration? Regeneration is entirely an act of God to send his Holy Spirit to change a person's heart. That is the, the glorious truth of regeneration. It is this idea of a, of a rebirth, of a new birth, of something being totally changed and made new. It's this, what we just read about in Ezekiel. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God to turn a heart of stone into something soft and malleable. It is the work of God to bring someone from death and make them alive. It is the work of God to open the eyes of a sinner to see the beauty of Jesus and what he's done on the cross and believe in him. It is the work of God to quicken a sinner to want to follow Jesus. Here's one more textbook definition is this. It is the sovereign work of God to grant spiritual life to a person, raising them from the dead so that they now repent and believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, God has to do this work in your heart. Why? Why is that necessary? We might be a little offended by that. Well, the reason why that's necessary is because the scriptures teach a truth that we are spiritually dead. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, just think about this for a second. How many decisions do dead things make? Dead things don't make decisions. They're dead. They, that's just, that's what they are. That's the description that we have in the Bible of us spiritually. It says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead things don't all of a sudden come to life because they decide, I want to live now. 
Something must happen to change that situation. It means the Bible is telling us this, that we are unable to see Jesus as he is on our own. We are unable to have a desire to follow him. We are unable to believe in the good news of Jesus and believe that it is good news apart from God doing some radical change within us because we are dead. So how does it happen? It is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit, but he does it through the Word. The Word of God is what the Spirit of God uses to change someone's heart. He uses the gospel message of Jesus to change someone's heart. This is the means by which God does this. Or maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe it's the 500th time you've heard it. But the moment that God wants to do this, he's going to use the word of God and open your eyes to it in a way you've never seen it before. Where all of a sudden it feels like, and maybe some of you have had this experience, where you heard about what Jesus has done for you, that, that he came down to earth to live a perfect, sinless life that you could not, and chose to go to the cross to pay the price for our sins, the price that we deserved, which is the wrath of God for our sins. That he, he died in your place and rose again to newness of life. So now if you believe in him, you can be saved. Some of you heard that for the first time at one point in your life and it was like you were hearing it for the first time. Maybe you'd heard it a million times, but there was something that one time that clicked where you were like, oh my gosh, th this, this is it. Jesus looks sweeter than I've ever seen him before. My own depravity and my own need and my own sinfulness has looked worse now than it ever has before. And you realize I need help. My efforts, my, my strivings, my... My security that I've been looking for, all these things, all the ways I've been looking for, they're, they, they just, they just, they're not enough. The call of the gospel looks sweeter than it ever has before. The offer of forgiveness that Jesus gives has looked better than it ever has before. And all of a sudden you see it and you're like, I need that. I need that Jesus. I, if I, I, I'm dead without him. I, I need that forgiveness. I need that new life. I need what he, who he is. And it comes alive for the very first time. Some of you have heard that over and over and over again, and it just sounds like blech. But some of you know the experience I'm talking about. This is what the Spirit of God does. He uses the Word of God. He uses the gospel message to awaken hearts. And it's as, it's as if you hear that gospel and there is this call to you. I was just talking with, with somebody a couple weeks ago who was, who was describing this to me. I'm just saying, hey, I was sitting in church and it just felt like all of a sudden the preacher, it, it was, he was like, it, it was as if someone was calling me to trust in Jesus. This is what the Spirit of God does through the Word of God to call someone to say, come, come believe in me. Come trust in me. And when that call comes from God, it's responded to with belief. Let me give you two examples of what this looks like. One comes later in the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 11. One of Jesus' friends dies. His name is Lazarus. We'll get to the story in a few months. One of Jesus' friends dies, Lazarus, and he's been dead for a few days. And Jesus comes to where he's buried and says, hey, you know, open up the tomb. And they're like, Jesus, it's going to stink in there. 
Jesus is like, just do it, okay? He opens up, they open up the tomb, and Lazarus is dead, dead. For three days, dead, dead. And he says, Lazarus, come out. The call goes out to the dead man, and what happens to the dead man? He wakes up, and he comes out of his tomb, and he's alive. That's what it looks like when the Spirit of God does this work of regeneration in someone. He calls out and he says, Lazarus, come out and the dead come to life. Another example of this happens in Ezekiel chapter 37, which is right after that passage we just read in Ezekiel 36 about water and spirit. This is, this is another example. Let's look at this together. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'll have the verses on the screen as well. Sometimes the word Lord on these slides gets small. That's not intentional. It's just a formatting thing. So anyways, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Bones are dead. And he led me around among them, among the bones. And behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. They were very dead. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Their word. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath. Same word as spirit, by the way. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and I'll put my breath, my spirit in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound. Behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there, was, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath, there was no spirit in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath that thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them, says the Lord God. Behold, I will open up your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you. You shall live. And I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord. That is a picture of what happens to every single person that comes to faith in Jesus. Dry bones, very dry bones, dead bones. The Word of God comes. The Spirit of God comes and it comes to life. And it produces faith. When the Spirit of God does this, 
Faith is the necessary response. It's what comes naturally after God brings new life is someone then professes faith in Jesus and says, he's my savior, I wanna follow him. And it's in this moment right there that there is a new origin that happens. Someone now is considered born of God. This is exactly what John said in John chapter one, at the beginning, do you remember? In John chapter one, verse 13, he says this, or 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, right? So in order for you to believe, the Holy Spirit has to do this work in you. But once he's done this work in you, you believe. And when you believe, he gives the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. You now have a new origin if this has happened to you. You have a new identity. And it's entirely the work of God to do this. Entirely. It's what the Bible says in, in Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3, a description of this work. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is entirely the work of God to save us. And then Jesus goes on. And he says this in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it, go, where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You may be asking yourself, okay, well, if that's what it means to enter the kingdom of God, if that's what it means to really be saved, is that the, the, the Holy Spirit does this work in someone, well then, how do I know? How do I know that that's happened? How do I know that when I see that? Jesus says we, we can't see the Spirit, but we can see the effects of his work. We can, we can know when he's been working somewhere. And there's ways that we can tell. I thought it'd be helpful this morning to just look at a couple markers before we close. Jonathan Edwards looked at this when he was alive and he was writing. He was asking this question, what are some genuine marks of the Holy Spirit at work? He would look at different revivals that were happening across his time and some looked like they were genuine works of the Holy Spirit. Some looked like they were total frauds. And so he was asking this question, how do we know the difference? How do we know when the Holy Spirit is really doing this work in someone's life? What will we see? And there's a great book by, by a, a, a guy named Jared Wilson who's picked up on this work of, of Edwards and he, and he wrote this book. You can look it up later. But he looked at this and said, there, there's some things that we see that maybe we attribute to the work of the Holy Spirit, but in reality, they're just neutral. One, one is people just saying they've made decisions to follow Jesus. That sounds great, but we also know that people just saying they made decisions sometimes isn't a marker that actually they've been saved, that actually the Holy Spirit has done this work in their life. Because sometimes people will say they make a decision, but they really didn't make a decision. It was just kind of the, the fervor of the moment. Or sometimes we see churches that are filled with people, tons and tons and tons of people coming. The Spirit of God must be doing this work among those churches because of how many people are coming. Well, 
There's also, there's a, real, there's a lot of really, really bad popular things, right? Just because something is popular, even if it's a church, doesn't mean the Spirit of God's working there. That's a neutral thing. It could be great, but there's also been cults that have drawn a lot of people, right? Or the, a lot of emotional response. That could be good, but it's not necessarily a marker that the Holy Spirit has done this work. So here's, here's a few one is this. This is not a checklist, by the way, for you to accomplish. I hope this is an encouragement for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus to say, okay, I, I, yes, I can be confident. The Spirit is producing these things in my life. Or maybe this morning, if you think you're a follower of Jesus, but you hear some of, the th some of these things and you realize, I don't, I don't see any of those in my life. Maybe you haven't turned to follow Jesus. Here's one. When the Holy Spirit has done this, we will see this in a person, a genuine love for Jesus. A genuine love for Jesus. Not just an intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus, but an actual affection for him. Charles Spurgeon says this, if you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. If there is something in you when you think on Jesus and who he is and what he's done, if there is a sweetness in your heart, if there is an affection in you that you can't fake but you know... I love him. I don't love him perfectly, but I love him. The presence of any affection for Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit because you can't produce that. You were dead. The Bible describes us as enemies with God, haters of God. You could, you could ascribe to, to, to agree to facts about him. The demons will agree to all the facts about Jesus, but there's no warmness or affection in their hearts for Jesus. If you have any of that, that is the Holy Spirit because that's not from you. There will be a genuine love for the person of Jesus. Is he becoming sweeter to you? Another one would be this. There will be a discernible spirit of repentance. Repentance is the most unnatural thing ever. No one wants to confess their sins. Right? We've all experienced this before. You get caught in your sin and your mistake, something you did wrong. Your instinct is like run or cover it up or fight back at the person. There's nothing within us that says, oh, look at this sweet invitation to be totally honest about my failures, about my sin. There's nothing natural about that. Look, I'm not saying that if you're a follower of Jesus, you just love repentance all the time. It's always hard. But there is something in the follower of Jesus that this work has happened to you. There's a willingness to walk towards repentance. It's the, it's, it's the call of becoming a follower of Jesus is to openly confess my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. It's a life of that. So in, in the follower of Jesus that this work has happened, we will see repentance. It doesn't mean it will always be easy, but we should be able to discern a willingness to walk towards repentance in each other.
we'll also see this. We'll see a devotion to the Word of God. A devotion to the Word of God. A willingness to come under the Word of God to say, it's my authority. To say, yeah, I'll, even though it's hard, I'll allow the Word of God to have authority over my money. I'll allow the word of God to have authority over my body and how I use it sexually. I'll, I'll allow the Lord to have authority over, over my life, where I go, my comfort. I'll allow the word of God to reign and allow him to teach me and shape me and guide me through his word. A couple more. We'll also have an interest in who he is which means an, a, somewhat of an interest in theology. Now, I don't mean to say this of like, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you're going to come to the men's Bible study. Or if you're a true follower of Jesus, you're going to go pick up a systematic theology book off of Amazon and you're going to read it. And you're going to start reading all the church fathers and church history if you're really a father. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, is that if the Holy Spirit has done this work in you, God's people want to know the things of God. We want to know what he's like. We want more of him. We want to discover more of who he is. We want to seek after these things. I want, I want to understand, what does the Holy Spirit do? How does he work in my life? The people of God want to know the things of God. It's also this, and this one comes directly from Jesus to his disciples, is that we'll know that the work of the Holy Spirit is taking place in someone when we see an evident love for God and neighbor. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. The people of God love the family of God and love those that are far off and love sacrificially, love in a way that doesn't make sense, love in a way that inconveniences, in a way that requires sacrifice. It's who Jesus is. It's what he's done for us and it's how he makes us to be. Each and every one of these things are things that are not natural to us. We cannot force ourselves to do these things. Genuinely, they are works of the Holy Spirit to produce in us. Simply put, these are the things that the Spirit of God produces in his people. It's what he's saying to Nicodemus, and it leaves Nicodemus in this place of just utter confusion. Where he follows up to what Jesus has said here, and he just says, How can this be? How can this be the way that it works? How can this even be a reality? How can someone actually get this new origin? What you're saying doesn't make sense. You're saying that if I'm going to enter the kingdom of God, something has to happen in me that is outside of my control and entirely up to God? Well, how do I do it? How, how can this be? And Jesus will answer that in the next few verses. But we're all meant to be driven to this place of, of kind of, how, then, then what? How can we do this? How, how can this be? And it's meant to drive us to fall on our knees before the Lord and say, there is nothing I can do. There is nothing within me that I can bring to you to enter your kingdom. I need your mercy. I need your grace. It's meant to bring us to the cross, to look and see Jesus in our place and the offer of forgiveness that he gives to us to say, all that will come to me I will never cast out. 
So come to me. Come and believe. Come and turn from your sins and trust in me. And the next few verses that we'll look at next week, Jesus essentially gives Nicodemus his victory speech. If we engage in this dialogue, and I am the teacher from God, and now I'm going to tell you the way some things are. I'm going to tell you what it looks like to enter this kingdom. And he's going to share the gospel with him, and it's beautiful. And all of this is only done by the grace of God, by his mercy, by his power, and it's all to his glory. It's so that we as the people of God would recognize there was nothing within me that did this. It was all by the sheer mercy of God, all to his glory. So we sing of his praises because he did this in us. He's worthy. And so we're going to respond to him by telling him that in just a moment. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is offensive to our nature to confess that there is nothing within us that we can do that we are wretched, that we are depraved, that we are dead, that we are not lovely. God, it offends us that we can't earn our way in. But God, it only offends us because we think that we're stronger than we are. We think that we're more impressive than we are. But Lord, we're nothing without you. We are dead without you. And so Lord, we give you praise. We give you worship as the dry bones that have now come to life by your mercy. We praise you now as, as the house of God, as the people of God, who have now all of us in common be able to look at one another and say, we were all dead. We were all those dry bones sitting in the valley, but Jesus made us alive and we are now going to sing the praises of our good God. Lord, we thank you that you are committed to doing this work. We ask that you would do more of it, that you would do more of it among us in our church, that you would do more of it among us in our city and in our world, that you would bring people from death to life through the word, through your spirit, and God, what an honor and a privilege that you even choose to use us as heralds of the gospel in this process. So Lord, now we just, we want to respond to you. We want to respond to you with, with worship. So say thank you for your mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.